You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. 1 Peter 1 or 1 Peter 5 1 through 5. 1 Peter 5 1 through 5 if you'll turn there. Uh, we are continuing in this one another series and today is about having humility to one another. Um, we've got a few weeks left. Next week we'll be talking about love one another. Uh, the week prior or after that, we'll um, actually look at some ways that the phrase is used in a negative sense. And what I mean by that is um, not commands of what we should be to one another, but what we should not be to one another. Um, and so some concerns and some warnings there that the scriptures will give us. And then we'll have one final uh, one there on Lord's Supper. And then the last Sunday of November kicks off our Advent season. And I hope, again, I mentioned that last week. I hope you're praying for that. I hope you're inviting people for that. We're going to be talking about being the presence of hope and peace and love and joy and Christ in people's lives. And I'm not going to attempt to spell it again because I got it wrong last week and I heard about it after the service. So um, y'all can Google it if you want to see how it's spelled, okay? First uh, Peter 5, 1 through 5, and the issue of having humility with one another. Peter writes, beginning verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." Verses 1 through 4 in this little section are really, uh, it's really a challenge to the leadership of the local church. And Paul uses this word elders. Uh, there are three English words in our translations that typically uh, point to leadership in the church. It is the word elder, it is the word bishop, and it is the word overseer. Um, in 1 Timothy 3, as an example, uh, there's a section there in 1 Timothy 3 that we always use when we are appointing new deacons because it says qualifications for deacons. Prior to that, in 1 Timothy 3, it says qualifications for an overseer. And an elder in the New Testament terms is synonymous with an overseer, with being a leader in the church. As an example, in Acts 20, Paul calls the elders of the Ephesian church to him and says to them in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. And so this issue of elder leadership uh, in the church is woven throughout the New Testament. It's always plural in nature, which is a very important point. There's really no distinction in the New Testament church of having a single elder over charge or over an authority over the church. Um, it's also an issue of understanding that elders typically, uh, or overseers, or bishops sometimes in the scriptures, are typically seen as those who have some sort of a pastoral duty or responsibility over the church, and that's by virtue of the word shepherd. 
We're going to return to it here in just a moment, but just look there again at verse 2. The call among the elders is to shepherd the flock that is among you. In Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, uh, Paul talks about the gifts of, of leadership that God has given the church, and he mentions shepherds and teachers, or in some translations, pastors and teachers. Here, the word shepherd or pastor in Ephesians 4 is just the noun version of the verb shepherd that we find here in 1 Peter uh, 5, verse 2. So you, you may say, well, why, am, why am I giving you all this? Well, I'm giving you all this because sometimes when we see scriptures and there's a, a word there that we're not used to in our church, it can be a little confusing. And the reality of it is most Southern Baptist churches in the modern era don't use the term elder. They use the term pastor and deacons, and those typically sort of form a, a, a governing or a ruling or a leading body over the church. That's a recent development in Southern Baptist life, mind you. There's a, there's a, a document that's called the Baptist Faith and Message, and it basically is a document that sort of spells out what Southern Baptists believe about certain things. And in the very first one that was drawn up in 1925, they described in that document that the functions or the offices in the church were bishops and elders and deacons. It wasn't until 1963 that they revised it to say pastors and deacons. And you say Baptists can't change. Essentially what it means here, essentially what, Paul, what Peter is dealing with is leadership in the church that have a shepherding responsibility. And so what I want you to, to get today is these first four verses are a specific challenge to anybody who's gathered here today or who is watching and has a shepherding responsibility in the church. What does it mean to shepherd somebody? It means to nourish them. It means to care for them. It means to, uh, to watch over them, to help supply them need to mature. The, the obvious reference for that time frame is that it was a shepherd and shepherding flocks, which you don't really have a lot of today, but that's what that shepherd would do for that flock of sheep is protect and nourish and grow and, and supply them with pastures that they could, they could feed in and begin to grow physically. And so the spiritual idea of shepherding is just to do all those things for a person in the church from the spiritual perspective. And so pastors are shepherds. Ministry leaders are shepherds. Deacons are shepherds. If you teach a Sunday school class, you're a shepherd. If you teach a small group, you're a shepherd. If you teach kids, you're a shepherd. And so these verses are called to this challenge for leadership. And I'll explain in just a few moments why I think Peter begins here with the issue of leadership. But I want to present these first four verses to you today in these fashions. One, to anyone who is a shepherd in this church this is Peter's call to you. To anyone who desires to be a shepherd in this church, this is Peter's call to you. And so he says, beginning in verse 1 again, let's go on and read back through that. I exhort, I encourage the elders among you, the shepherds, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the, in the glory that is going to be revealed, Shepherd the flock that is among you, and he first says, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. What does it mean to have oversight over someone? It just means to be accountable for them, to guide for them, to care for them, to invest your life into them. But I'll go back to it, to be accountable for them. If you are in a shepherding position, you are accountable for how you shepherd, 
You're accountable for how you lead. That's why James wrote in his letter in, in chapter 3, not many of you really should desire to be teachers, for teachers will be held in a stricter judgment. When you're handling the Word of God, when you're teaching the Word of God, when you're shepherding people with the Word of God, there is an accountability that comes upon your life, and it should not be taken lightly. He says, not under compulsion, but willingly. Uh, simply put, a leader, a shepherd, should not be forced into leadership. You've got to have a willing heart. You've got to have a willing spirit to be able to step into that position in the church. He goes on to say after that, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, this does have to do with, with payment, or this does have to do with someone uh, sort of receiving uh, uh, their, their living, or at least a part of their living from payment for their leading. But this has to do with a very particular idea of how it means to shepherd in a wrong way. He says not to do so with shameful gain. It's a phrase that essentially meant this. It speaks of a leader or a shepherd who plays favorites in the church, particularly to those who are rich and influential in the church, and who also alters the message or alters the teaching so as not to offend the rich and influential, so they'll continue to support both publicly and privately. Um, as, a, as a kid growing up with a dad who was a deacon in a, in a church, I was made privy to a lot of things behind the scenes for right or wrong. And I know growing up, I've heard it from multiple sources other than my dad when he was alive, how there would be deacons in that church who would slide little extra envelopes to pastors in exchange for kind of keeping quiet about their stuff. Call out the sins of the others. Hammer home the sins of everybody else. But when this stuff surfaces, just, just keep this down, down between us. That's what it means to shepherd for shameful gain. It's to give credence to or, or, or uh, to show favoritism to a group in order to do that. Now, let me give you another sort of more modern example of how this has happened in the church previously. Uh, you're sitting in pews. That may be the worst name for a seat I've ever heard in my life. <clears throat> but nonetheless, you're sitting in pews, right? And in the scope of Christianity, pews are a relatively modern thing. They didn't begin to exist in churches in Europe until about the 1500s. But when they began to exist and when they began to take hold in churches, from the 1500s all the way up really into the early 1900s in both Europe and in the United States, oftentimes pews would be sold. A family could buy a pew or buy a set of pews. Sometimes churches were designed in such ways that all the pews didn't face forward in this nature, but they sort of, if you want to think about it, if you've ever been to a horse show and the boxes, right, that surround the, the arena, they were set up in that way so that they could lock them so no one else could sit in their seat. And they would sell off these pews or these blocks of pews and they would become personal property of the people in the church. Passed down from generation to generation through legal issues like wills. Now there were free pews in the back for the poor, for the occasional wayfaring stranger. 
sadly, for persons of different races. But there was influential and rich persons given proper or uh, given favoritism in that sense. That's what it means to shepherd for the shameful gain. He moves on, verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Two weeks ago, we looked at what it means to submit to one another, that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so here he's using a word domineering that actually means forced submission. It's a word that means to bring someone under subjection underneath you, to force them into submission to you. And he says to leaders in the church, to shepherds, to elders, not to do that. Jesus had a warning against that. In Mark chapter 10, the, 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 uh, the 12 are all indignant. The 10 are, are angry at James and John because they've been asking for places of favoritism and places of prominence. And Jesus says to them in Mark 10, beginning verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, uh, an idea of bringing under subjection, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you should be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom to many. Peter says, you who are shepherds in the church, don't, don't do this in a domineering way. Don't bring others under subjection before you without being mutually submissive. He says, instead, to be an example. Um, I, I love to read. I did not always love to read in my life. But I have developed the discipline of, of reading in my life. And I typically read in kind of three ways. Uh, I read things that pertain to my ministry and my job as a pastor and my calling and so forth. And then I read things for fun, not as much, but I work some of that in there. And occasionally I read books that kind of are fun reads or interesting reads, but also bleed over into the first. And this is a book I picked up about a month ago that I just got started in um, recently. It's a book called Leaders Eat Last. And there's a foreword written in this book by a man named George Flynn, a retired U.S. Marine Corps officer. And I want you to hear what he says about this idea of being an example. He says, when you are with Marines gathering to eat, you'll notice the most junior are served first and the most senior are served last. When you witness this act, you'll also note no order is given. Marines just do it. At the heart of this very simple action is the Marine Corps approach to leadership. Marine leaders are expected to eat last because the true price of leadership is the willingness to place the needs of others above your own. Great leaders truly care about those they are privileged to lead and understand the true cost of leadership privilege comes at the expense of self-interest. And that's, that's what Peter is saying here. To you who are shepherds, to you who are leaders, eat last. Understand that the privilege of leading, whether it be leading kids or leading a Sunday school or leading a small group or leading an entire church, the privilege of leading is that you lead and you understand that your self-interest kind of goes bye-bye at that point because you are concerned with the others, not domineering them but being examples. And he goes on to say in verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, so after all this call to the leadership, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Serve well now, receive your reward later. 
Now, the Bible talks about crowns and rewards to all believers, so this is not just unique to the leadership of the church. But understand that the call then to all believers is to serve well now and trust in God for our reward later. And so in this, the leadership is to display humility. But then he begins to challenge everyone else in the church in verse 5. Look at that with me again, if you will. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. What does it mean with likewise? Well, it really points back to verse 4, because when Peter says, when the chief shepherd appears, what he's saying in that moment is, you elders, you leaders, you shepherds, there's one you submit to, or at least you better be. There's one that you are under subjection to. There's one that you have humility towards, the chief shepherd. And so likewise, as you as leaders have humility before the chief shepherd, chief shepherd all, the, all the younger needs to submit to or be subject to the elders in humility. What does it mean that it's the younger or to be subject to the elders? Younger here is typically not a word that has to do with chronological age, but has to do with spiritual maturity. That's kind of the norm when we see this kind of imagery in the New Testament. If you think back to Paul's writings to the Corinthian church, he calls them infants. They were adults. But he says they're spiritual infants. So here he's talking about the issue of the younger being those who are maybe less spiritually mature or early in their spiritual maturity walk, putting themselves in subjection before the elders. And you might say, well, why does he start then with the elders in verses 1 through 4? Everything that works, works from the top down. When a leader or a group of leaders acts one way, you can be best assured that the remainder of that organization will follow suit. And so Peter puts the, the, the emphasis on the leadership here, but he then does it in such a way to say it should trickle down, if you want to use that phrase, to where the younger then should see the humility that the leadership have before the chief shepherd and then be subject to them as well. And then he says, but really, this is the teaching. Clothe yourselves, he says in verse 5, all of you with humility toward one another. He boils it down similar to what Paul did with the submission piece a couple weeks ago. That all of us are in mutual submission to one another because all of us are in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, or should be. Here, all of us, be a young, young spiritually mature person or an older spiritually mature person, be a leader or a shepherd or someone who's just in the, involved in the church and not yet into those, into those positions, all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. It's this idea that we've seen sort of repeatedly in the last few weeks of putting on and putting off, right? Put off pride, as we'll see in just a moment, and put on humility. Clothe yourself. One of the commentaries um, that I read this week said it, was, said it this way, that we are to put on the apron of humility. Classified within the idea of an apron is the idea of serving. And I really believe that Peter had in mind here the example of Jesus that he saw in the final hours before Christ went to the cross. That John records in John 13, that he took off his outer garment and he took on a servant's garment and he washed their feet. 
You know, you, sometimes you play that game, if, if I knew I was going to die tomorrow, what would I do? Right? And I think our natural inclination is, oh, well, I'd, I'd try to go see this thing that I've never seen before, or go hang out with these friends, or go do this, like something earthly. Jesus, in his last hours, took up the position of a servant and washed all their feet, even the one who was about to betray him. Clothe yourselves with humility to one another. It's, it's difficult, I think, among all these one another passages to put them in an order of importance. But I got to tell you, I think this idea of clothing ourselves with humility towards one another has got to be up there like one or two. If we don't have humility towards one another, if, if, we're not, if it's not coupled with loving one another, which is what we'll look at next week, uh, we're probably never going to bear with one another. We're probably never going to submit to one another. All, all the things we've talked about over the last few weeks probably don't happen unless we intentionally clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. Why does he say to do this? Look there at the end of verse 5. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter here is quoting from Proverbs 3.34. He's, he's changing it just a little bit, but this is what Proverbs 3.34 says. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. What does it mean to be a scorner? It's one who jeers at people, one who makes fun of people, one who treats other people with contempt, who looks down on others, who stands in judgment of one another. And Peter uses a very similar word here when he talks about the issue of those being, uh, being prideful. God opposes the proud. God opposes those who have contempt for one another, who look down on one another, who stand in judgment of one another, who overestimate their own importance, who are arrogant, who have big egos. God opposes that person. But to the person in the church who are clothed in humility with one another, he gives favor, he gives grace. You may ask the question, and what does it mean that God opposes us? I, I think it, it could mean several things. It may mean that he refuses to answer our prayers. That when we're prideful, trusting in our own ways, trusting in our own judgments, trusting in our own earthly systems and ways of doing things, we don't really need God to answer a prayer. It may mean he refuses to display his work, his power in our lives, individually or collectively. The idea of grace and favor that he gives to those uh, who are humble is, yes, an idea of salvation, but secondarily, it's God's daily interaction with his people. In the Old Testament, Noah and Joseph and the people of Israel found favor with God. In the New Testament, Mary found the favor of God. Stephen was full of the grace of God in his humility. All of those things to indicate that in a daily situation, God was displaying his power in their lives, not because they were prideful, but because they were clothed in humility. Why this message today for this Lord's Supper Day? Humility is birthed. And humility is grown and matured in the remembrance of what Jesus has done for us at the cross. There's no way a prideful person accepts the cross. 
Because the prideful person trusts in his or her own works. They trust in his or her tradition and heritage. They trust in his or her own good enough morals when compared to other people. But the person clothed in humility who acknowledges their life, their sin, both past and present that's still within them, that person, humility is birthed in them through the remembrance of Jesus' work. Deep, deliberate remembrance of the cross drives us to humility. And in order to be driven to humility, we need to be reminded of just what it is that was in our lives or is in our lives that required Jesus to give his life for us. There are some folks who say, well, we don't need to remember or recall our sin or we don't need to, because God's forgiven that. And, and I, I agree to a sense. We, we don't, I don't need to go back through my life as a, as a playbook and remember all that I did and all that I was and maybe even all that I might be engaged in today and do so with guilt and condemnation and shame because that's not the way God works. But I need to remind myself every now and then of that to be mindful of just what it cost Jesus to save me. In Acts chapter 22, Paul is under arrest in Jerusalem. I would encourage you to read Acts 22 this week, the first 21 verses, I think it is. And as he's giving his defense in this term of arrest, one of the things he does is he goes through all the litany of all the sin that was in his past life. Even going so far as to say that when Stephen was stoned, I stood there giving approval to his death. And I don't believe Paul did that in, in that sense in Acts 22 or anywhere else he did in the New Testament scriptures to heap self-condemnation and guilt and shame upon himself. I think Paul revisited those things to continually put as a reminder before him just what Christ had done to save him. Just why he needed to be saved. To have a deep humility, not only for God, not only for the Son, not only for the Spirit, but to have a deep humility for others to recognize that everyone comes to the foot of the cross in the same fashion. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.